conversations with prominent pastors, teachers, and leaders. This is the Pastor Well Podcast from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Now your host, Dr. Herschel York. Hello and welcome to the Pastor Well Podcast. This is Herschel York, the Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm also pastor of the Buck Run Baptist Church in Frankfurt. The Pastor Well Podcast is a podcast dedicated to helping those who serve the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ to be faithful in their ministry. Today we're especially privileged to have Bob Russell with us, and we're going to be talking about pastoring, preaching, theology, all that, uh, uh, wherever this conversation leads us. God has blessed Bob Russell with a life much different than he or anyone could have imagined. As a young man growing up in northern Pennsylvania, Bob had intended on becoming a high school basketball coach in his hometown, but during his senior year of high school, Bob realized a desire in his heart to enter the ministry. Soon after, he enrolled in Cincinnati Bible Seminary, where he graduated in 1965. And at just 22 years of age, Bob became the pastor of the Southeast Christian Church in Louisville. That small congregation of 120 members became one of the largest churches in America, with 18,000 people attending in three services uh, when Bob retired in 2006. Uh, now through Bob Russell Ministries, he continues to preach at churches and conferences throughout the United States and uh, uh, gives a lot of expertise and insight on church leadership. He mentors other ministers, and uh, he has authored Bible study for use in small groups. He's an accomplished author. He's written over a dozen books. His latest book, After 50 Years of Ministry, Seven Things I Would Do the Same and Seven Things I Would Do Differently, is absolutely fantastic and encouraging. Bob, it is a joy to have you on, Pastor Well. Welcome. Well, thank you, and I'm honored to be here, and thank you for the plug on that book. Uh, it was one of those things where I wanted to pour out my heart to younger pastors, and I appreciate the way it's being received. Well, yeah, I was uh, privileged to get to read it uh, an advanced copy. I think I actually wrote you uh, a blurb for it and uh, was just absolutely um, blessed by it. I asked my students to read it in my pastoral ministry class because what an incredible insight. You know, uh, a lot of times you simply don't know what you don't know. When you're starting out, you know, you're trying to figure things out. And to get that kind of insight from you uh, who lived it and went through it, you've pastored really every size church of every size of church there is. You know, my practical ministries class in Bible college primarily consisted on how to have a pictorial directory and run a vacation Bible school. <laughs> and that was about it. And, and I think we need some practical suggestions about what we can anticipate in ministry. And that's one of the things I try to put in that book. So uh, a lot of people think you started Southeast Christian, but you did not. They, they actually called you to be their minister. Is that correct? Right. It started in 1962 by the South Louisville Christian Church here in town. They started with about 50 or 60 people, met in a school. And it was actually four years old when I came, and it was meeting in the basement of a house. Wow. So, I mean, one of the hardest things about pastoring in a growing church is going through transitions. You know, there are certain plateaus you hit. And, and then the personality of the church changes as the size changes. So how did you, the same guy, go through every single stage of those permutations? You know, looking back, I felt like there were kind of three major changes that took place. First, I was the pastor. 
And if a guy really hustles, I think he can be the personal chaplain to 150 or 200 people. But once you get beyond that, you're going to have to delegate some things out. And my second role was being the preacher. And I would try to pastor people by from the pulpit. But the last role, when you get into the thousands, I was kind of the CEO of the church. And that was probably the most uh, difficult adjustment. But you either grow into it or you get out. Right. Is there one of those you like better than the other? I probably like being the pastor best of all. I, I never really gave up that role. Even when the church was uh, well over 10,000, I continued to spend some afternoons going to funeral homes, and I would occasionally go to the hospital. I couldn't see everybody, but I, I still like being the, the pastor to people. Yeah, and that must have really blessed people when they saw you coming through the door of that funeral home or the hospital room. I mean, wow, there's... That's Bob Russell. That's one of the blessings of being a a minister of a large church. You know, if you're the pastor of a church of 100 people, somebody dies, they expect you to go sit in the funeral home for a couple hours. And then you're the pastor of a large church, and people say, oh, I couldn't believe you left me a voicemail thanking me (laughs) or or expressing sympathy to me. And less is expected of you after the church gets to be 1,000 people. You you learn to you under-promise. But overperform. Yeah, that's uh, a good that's, phrase right there. Yeah, that's that's sort of the goal. It's yeah. they don't expect as much of you because you're busy and it's bigger. But then when you do show up, it really matters. It, it has. But you know what? Power. There was a sense in which Herschel, I still was the pastor to some of those people who were charter members. Right. And they still expected. When, Brother Bob, we know you you can't do everything. Nobody expects you to do everything. But if it's their child or if it's their husband, then all of a sudden they expect me to still be their pastor. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, Buck Run, the church I pastor, was for most of its 200-year history, pretty tiny little church on the banks of the Elkhorn Creek. And now, you know, it's grown a lot. We're on a 100-acre campus and a pretty big building and hundreds of people come. And you're exactly right. Those initial people that I, I first pastored, well, they'll say it to me sort of like this. They'll say, now, pastor, we old people, we're, we're grateful for the growth. We love to see this. This is wonderful. This is what we've prayed for. But don't forget what made us this way. Yeah, yeah, but don't forget me. That's exactly <laughs> what it means. You are, you've read that right. Well, they'll say, oh, I like the church growing, but I just don't want it to get too big. Yeah. I always say, I'm, aren't you glad nobody said that before you before came? Before you got here. That's right. Well, what did the people of Southeast Christian teach you about how to pastor or how to preach? Well, one of the great things about this church before I came is that they had a very solid core of elders. These guys got along. They were very capable leaders. And in fact, they realized they had great potential. And they looked to hire a man in his middle 30s who had 12, 10 years of experience. And there are two guys in our movement who were really shining stars potentially. And they came and had trial sermons. And both of them almost came and backed off at the last minute. So they went for a year without a preacher. And finally they said, well, maybe God's trying to lead us to a younger man. And they went to the president of our Bible college in Cincinnati, and they said, "Uh, we're going to hire a younger man, and we're going to make him successful. I thought, wow, that that ought to be the slogan of every lay leadership in in the country. That's amazing. We're going to make him successful. And, you know, I can look back at gentle ways in which they protected me or they guided me early on. And uh, they really lift, like Aaron and her, lifting up the arms of Moses. That's what those early leaders did for me. Uh, and how did you set aside time for preaching? 
Tell me about your preaching. Okay, well, there's a little story involved in that. Okay, good. When I was in Bible college, I was preaching at a a church of about 70 people on the weekend. When I graduated, I said to the elders of this church, I said, I don't want to be a bivocational preacher. Would you consider hiring me full-time? Well, they'd been a weekend church for uh, 100 years. Well, they had a two-hour elders meeting, and finally they decided if I would come full-time, they would up my salary from $50 to $70. (laughs) I was worth 20 more dollars. $20. But it was an ideal place to begin because they weren't used to having a preacher on the field, which meant nobody stopped by. Very few people called during the week. They didn't even have an office at the church. So the first Monday at that church, my wife left for uh, work at 7.30 in the morning, and there I sat at the breakfast table, and I thought to myself, how am I going to spend my time? I can go down to the drugstore and strike up a conversation. I can watch TV. I can read magazines. But I, I thought, you know, I might be establishing a pattern here that will stay with me for a long time. So I said to myself, if I'm not in that little room that we call the study, at 8 o'clock, I'm late. So I went at 8 o'clock, and to noon, I studied for a sermon. Now, nobody called. Nobody came by. I was totally focused. When I was in Bible college, I could write a sermon in four hours, maybe three hours if the chapel speaker was good that week. (laughs) But, (laughs) But by Tuesday at noon, I've got my sermon finished. And I said, what am I going to do? Well, I think I'm going to write out this introduction. I think I'm going to read over this sermon five times. I'm going to read another commentary. I got in the habit in that first church, my first year of 20 hours a week in the mornings, my most alert time, studying for a sermon. When I came to Southeast, the atmosphere was already very different because people were stopping by. There was a buzz of activity. But I said to the secretary, I'm going to block off every morning between 8 and 12 I won't take any calls unless they're emergency. I told the congregation, if you want to see me, please come in the afternoon. I'm going to study in the morning. And that became a pattern that stayed with me all my ministry. And the mornings were for study. And I tell guys today, when you go, don't check email. Don't put your your cell phone down. Look at text. Just go in and study and make that a priority, not only in your mind, but in your scheduling. And uh, I heard uh, a, a great preacher uh, Massey, it was his last name, all of a sudden. Um, James Earl Massey. James Earl Massey. And he said, you give me time to spend alone with my Bible and my God, I guarantee you, you won't go home hungry or embarrassed. That's right. That's a great, great line. What a, what a discipline that you built in from the beginning. And I, I'm just guessing, I think you'd say that really shaped your life and ministry. No question. Uh, when... When I got into the habit of doing that, I felt like I was shortchanging people if, if I didn't continue that, that discipline of study. And my ministry, the priority was preaching. You know, you wrote a book called When God Builds a Church, and it's a, can I just say, it's a lovely book. A lovely book. It Thank is you. a lovely book. The only thing wrong with that book, there was another guy who wrote a similar book about the same time. I can't remember his name, but it was... Uh, when God builds a church, it was mine. His title was the Purpose Driven Church. Yeah, <laughs> and Rick Warren, <laughs> and you know that thing sold like mad. But yeah. uh, I, 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 we have uh, similar backgrounds. Yeah. Well, when God builds a church, it really is. Uh, first of all, I think it's your story. It's the story of Southeast Christian. But uh, what I love about it is that it's applicable to. You're not. You're not telling guys how to build a mega church. 
Yeah, you're you're talking about letting God do a work. And key is the, your your time in the Word and alone with the Lord. You know my favorite thing about that book? Uh, I didn't have a title to it. I sent in the 10 chapters, and the publishers got together, and they titled it, When God Builds a Church. Well, I love that title. Thank I you. love that title, and, and it does accurately reflect what uh, the book says. Uh, so um, let me ask you this. You, you preach a lot of different places. I always like to ask preachers. So when you go somewhere and preach, uh, do, do you have a sugar stick sermon? Do you Is there one, two, three, four, five sermons that you typically draw from? Do, do you work up something new? I mean, t- what's, your, what's your routine now that you're not pastoring, so it's not preaching in the same way? How do you do that? The biggest pressure of ministry for me was having that term paper due every week. Mm-hmm. And every preacher knows you wake up on Monday morning and Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. And so one of the things I liked about retiring is I got out from underneath that pressure. So I do. I have six or eight uh, road sermons that I can pick up and preach at the drop of a hat. And sometimes I get assignments, but I want them several weeks out so I don't have the pressure of doing that in a week. But I've got sermons like Why I Love the Church or A Radical Faith or uh, Joy in Spite of Circumstances that I love to preach on the road. One of the best things I've ever heard you do, and I've, I've heard a lot of your preaching and followed you over the years in a lot of different ways. You did the leadership lectures here at Southern a few years ago. I still think it was the greatest uh, leadership. I'll call it a lecture. In many ways, it was a sermon, but I, I think it was the greatest leadership lecture I've ever heard. And it was in, in which you showed a slide of the people in your home church. Can you talk about that? Do you remember that? Oh, I'm sure yeah. You that, that talk was uh, lessons I've learned from mistakes I've made. And at the end, I try to encourage people to be faithful. Right. And I tell them the history of my home church and show them a picture of the first Christian church, Meadville, Pennsylvania, in 1941. And it's one of those black and white photos that everybody can identify with. And I, this is a church that represents everybody's church because it had about 150, 180 people. And you look at it and say, what kind of influence could this church in an out-of-the-way town like Meadville, Pennsylvania, what kind of difference could this church make? And then I talk about the descendants of the people in this church. It's amazing. About how this person became a missionary to Tokyo, Japan. These, this couple had a daughter who was uh, involved in a missions organization. Her son now is in charge of all the missions, all the new church plants in Virginia. And this couple uh, have a daughter who's a missionary to Alaska. And the preacher's son became the governor of the state. And then I show my parents, and uh, my parents had six kids, and we all went into various. And, and you get finished, and you say, Wow, wow, the influence of this church is all over the world. But the amazing thing is, shortly after this picture was taken, they asked the preacher to resign because nothing was happening in the church. <laughs> but they had no idea of the seeds that had been planted that were growing all over the world. You, you know, we often forget, you know, Jeremiah didn't have a single convert, really, mm. you know, but he was faithful. And uh, the Lord used Jeremiah in ways that went far beyond Jeremiah's lifetime. And that's what the word does. I mean, God has promised it does not return void. And we really need to rest in that and just be faithful to the word. The time that you spend in the word, 
it always has a result. Just bloom where you're planted. You know, John the Baptist numbers went down the second year. That's right. <laughs> and Jesus said, no greater man born to woman than John the Baptist. Uh, I heard somebody say just recently that when we talk about the, the preaching of the Bible, that makes things happen. We think it's tomorrow. Yeah. But the sower goes forth to sow seed, and it takes a while for it to spring up. It really does. Even in the history of Southeast Christian Church, say, well, that was spectacular growth for you to grow from 120 people to 18,000. Well, they forget that first decade we grew from 120 to 400. You know, I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, I don't know. You, I'm sure you don't remember it, but I do. In 1990, I became pastor of Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Lexington, and Southeast was the, the, the church that was had grown the most in the state of Kentucky. Uh, uh, you had not yet moved out. Uh, you were still down in Hikes, uh, Hikes Lane. Hikes Lane. But I had my secretary call your office and see if you would be willing to go to lunch with a 30-year-old uh, pastor from Lexington. And I thought this was going to be really hard to arrange and there would have to be some begging and pleading. But my secretary, very first call, said, yeah, uh, he'll see you. And told me the date, come to Southeast and meet you. We went out to lunch. I peppered you with all kinds of questions, both uh, – Theological, practical, you answered everything with incredible transparency, openness, and honesty. Uh, and you gave me uh, a list, uh, basically a, a, a little set of statistics that showed that growth, showed how slow that growth was at first, and then and then it, it sort of began to become exponential. And that time you were planning to move uh, out on Blankenbaker, uh, where you built a, really a massive uh, building, uh, and you also then, you took me in the building, you gave me your What We Believe class materials. You told me, oh, you know, don't call it a new member's class, call it a What We Believe class. You, get, you know, get people that are all, aren't all are yet new members but thinking about it. And you told me how to cast the net wider, and you just gave me all kinds of information. It was an incredible and eye-opening experience for me, and it gave me sort of a handle on what I needed to do. And I went back and I implemented Many of those things that you taught me that day and just, you know, I just had that one time with you and it was, it was so enriching. And so first of all, I just want to say thank you. Oh, thank you. It, it was encouraging to see that that growth was slow. It, you know, you, I believe you grew every year. I, sometimes it was very incremental, but you, you didn't go de decline any, but it was a long time. You were there. I don't know. 40 years altogether. Yeah. So it was at like. At that time, I'd been there 30 years almost. Yeah, and I think it was really 20 years before you started seeing yeah. the really significant growth. What does that say about a, a long tenure versus a series of shorter tenures? Well, I don't think it, God calls everybody to a long ministry. You know, the Apostle Paul stayed maybe three or four years at Ephesus, and that was his longest ministry. But I just think there's so many advantages to being one place a long time. And there are some disadvantages. You know, you can make so many mistakes that you lose leadership credibility mm -hmm. uh, or you, you just wear out. But if you can go one place and a long time, there develops a stability in the church and a sense of identification with you that people begin to have confidence in you. There are some side benefits. Your kids don't have to be moved every few years. And you can, in a sense, become uh, the pastor to the community. And you 
the, the community, even yeah. the people who don't go to church, begin right. to, to have an identification with you. You know, from being a buck run as long as you've been there, you're asked to do things in Frankfurt because of your long uh, right. term ministry there that you wouldn't be able to ask if you were just there five years. You know, uh, you also had a profound impact, I would say, even on the business world. I look at the CEOs and, and prominent businessmen and women that really had a confidence in you and uh, attended Southeast. You had a really large impact on them as well. And is that a challenge to, to deal? I mean, you're here you're dealing with, you know, just the salt of the earth people that are sort of normal people, but then you've got CEOs of major corporations that attend your church. How do you balance that? Well, being the pastor of a large church gives you a whole lot more credibility than you deserve. I, I, I tell our staff people, look, this church will make you look better than you really are. Mm-hmm. But when people see, people in the world see bigness, they associate that with success. We know that's not true spiritually. Right. But w- when they see something grow, uh, then they want to know, what's the guy doing at the top? And I would, there would be businessmen who would come to me and say, I notice that you do thus and so, and I'm going to implement that in my business. Or even, uh, one of the surprising things is I would occasionally say in sermons, okay, we have this rule on staff. You don't go out to eat with somebody who's not uh, your, your, your mate. You, yeah. you don't go home, in a home alone. You don't ride in a car alone. And it sounds so puritanical to some people in it the church. But sound. I had businessmen come to me and say, you know what, I'm going to implement that in my business. And, uh, and in fact, after I retired and made the transition to Dave Stone, uh, a judge here in town, I was sitting on a panel of, of, of some kind of downtown meeting, and I'd never met this guy. And he said, Bob, I admired your ministry at Southeast Christian Church, but I admired more the way you left. And it really uh, surprises me how people in the community have their antennas up about what's going on at the church and how things transpire there. I want to talk about that because I'm reminded that uh, George III, when he heard that George Washington was not going to accept another nomination, another term as president of the United States, he didn't believe it. And he said uh, if he should do that, he would be the greatest man on earth. Hmm. And George III could not believe that someone could have that kind of power and then walk away from it willingly. You did that, and and you did it extremely well at Southeast. You engineered your own departure and a transition plan uh, to Dave Stone. How how much in advance did you have that plan in place that upon your retirement he would be your successor? I read a book when I was 57, 58 years old called Too Great a Temptation by Joel Gregory. I, who, I, I could almost quote it. It's I, a sobering book. It is a sobering book. And it is fascinating. It shook me so much. I thought to myself, we cannot let that happen at Southeast Christian Church. What happened at First Baptist in Dallas is, is a tragedy. That This is too important. The Lord's in this too much. And so I had our elders read that book, and they said, Sober them too, and they said, "Bob, after you come back from your next study break, bring a skeleton plan for transition over the next whatever you want to make it, ten, twelve years, whatever." So I came back with five or six steps, and they tweaked it for a while. But we announced it five years in advance. Now I I wouldn't suggest that for everybody; it may be too long, but. 
Another thing, once you make that plan and you got the core leadership in agreement with it, you got to do what you say you're going to do. That's right. Stick with it. Because I saw so many guys tear down in the last part of their ministry what they had spent years to build up. And I I wanted to go out with uh, the, the church still on the upside of that bell curve and be able to hand the baton over so that the next guy could pick it up and go on. I know some preachers who they actually hope church attendance goes down after they leave, you know, yeah, like, the, boy, they, we, we really miss you. But if, if you are really building the kingdom for Christ and you really care about these people, you, you want them to, to continue to be faithful. You want the church to continue to grow. And I, I feel really good that church really misses me. They've grown from 18,000 to 26,000. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's amazing how quickly they forget you. I went back after a year, and my name's Bob, and uh, the guy looked at me. Oh, he said, Bill, good to have you back. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, well, I heard somebody say one time, if you realize that it doesn't really belong to you in the first place, it's yeah. not so hard to give up. Well, that's exactly right. It's about the Lord Jesus. Yeah. And you you built a great foundation. You know, Hans Finzel in his classic book, Top Ten Mistakes Leaders Make, one of them is success without successors. Mm. Now, in a Baptist context, I think we see this all the time, that we're, you know, because we have a way of, you know, it's congregational uh, approved, and so pastors just sort of do their thing and then step out, and there's no transition plan. There's no obvious person. But the reality is we should be training up. At the very least, we should be training up from within our churches uh, those that could serve as pastors, uh, really, uh, in in multiples. Moses had Joshua. Elijah had Elisha. Uh, Paul had Timothy. Barnabas had John Mark. And we need to be training somebody to step in, even when we're younger. The congregation ought to know, hey, if the preacher gets hit by a bus, That's who right. steps in? You know, That's right. There's a lady in her church, an older lady, and she's kind of funny lady, but she got tired of people in the community saying, yeah, your church is growing, but what's going to happen when Bob Russell dies? And she got so she answered, well, we'll bury the dude and go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not a bad philosophy, is it? Uh, well, uh, you currently lead Bob Russell Ministries. So what does your ministry look like now? Okay. When I retired, I think a person ought to retire to something, mm-hmm. not just from something. Great. So Philosophy. I had three or four things that I wanted to do. And one of those things was I wanted to travel and speak, which I get to do. And I preach more now than I ever did when I was at Southeast. I just don't have to write all those new sermons, but I preach a lot. But another thing I had down the list was I wanted to have – retreats to mentor younger preachers and I started off with the Timothys from our church and then it kind of developed I I have one retreat a month just about I do nine a year and I limit it to eight guys there's all kind of pastors conferences people that can go to with thousands but this is one that was interaction and there's a a involvement ministering to each other and I have done (laughs) I've done 90 some of these retreats wow and if you would have told me when I retired that I'd do 90 retreats and they would, I would never get tired of them, I would have never believed it. But we spend three and a half days and we do some study together and we do some fun things together. And last night they come over to our house and we talk about family. And the title of my retreat is A Time of Refreshing because preachers need an occasion when their, their well is filled. 
and uh, they're renewed. And so many times uh, they don't have that. So I, 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 they're absolutely free, but I make guys pay $500 in advance to come. And then if they come, they get their money back because they've they got to have some skin in the game. Or I know what they'll do. Two weeks out, they say, boy, I'm so busy. I just can't afford. They, they can't afford not to. Yeah, that's an amazing ministry on your part. Now, on some level, you were doing a lot of that even while you were pastoring. Uh, didn't didn't you share your like a study day with uh, other pastors for a while? I started a, a preacher's sermon study group. Yeah. And we started out with, uh, there were two guys who, the two of us wrote sermons together, and then some other guys asked, could we join, could we join? We got as many as eight in that group, and we met every Thursday and would share ideas about preaching. And that became uh, a time to mentor because there would be some younger guys come to that. And that was a, a rewarding experience too. Well, uh, I, I, uh, tell me about your, your, your son, Rusty. Uh, he's pastoring in Florida, is that not right? Yeah, Rusty uh, became the pastor of the New Day Christian Church in Port Charlotte, Florida, which is between Sarasota and, and uh, Fort Myers, really south of Florida. And he's been there eight years. And Herschel, you, you taught him homiletics, and he refers to you a lot. And he, when he was on staff of our church as a young man, he did a lot of teaching, but he didn't do very much preaching. But he's become a really good preacher, if I have to say so myself. In a, in a church, his church has grown from uh, about 500 people to well over 2,000 now. Wow. They're doing really good. Well, that delights me uh, no end. Uh, what do you like to do in your free time? Well, I think every preacher needs a hobby. And we need to love the church and love the Lord and be devoted. But right. we need something that we get our mind off everything and we look forward to. You need long-term hopes, you need short-term hopes. My short-term hopes were I, I enjoy watching the uh, University of Louisville basketball and football games. When I was younger, I used to love playing softball. One, one summer, I played 80-some softball games. We got in tournaments and had a lot of fun. And I, I enjoy playing golf a lot, and I, I do that. What's your handicap? I'm not very good. I'm a handicap probably 18. I, well, as you get older, you get worse. Well, uh, yeah, there, there's a reason they have a handicap, right? <laughs> well, Bob, it's been a joy to have you as we wrap up our time together, which I have loved immensely. I've got what I call uh, uh, the uh, – uh, it's sort of a lightning round. I call it twinkling of an eye round. Twinkling of an eye. We, we, we'll make it a little spiritual area. All right, you ready? Ready. Here we go. Who's your favorite secular writer? Probably Jordan Peterson. Uh, and if UK is playing University of Louisville, who do you cheer for? I, I'm on the spiritual side of that argument, University of Louisville. <laughs> uh, well, it's the twinkle of an eye around. I must move on. Your son, Rusty, we mentioned, is a pastor in Florida. You raised him. I taught him preaching. Who does he preach like more, you or me? There's no question about that. He preaches more like you. Well, I'm, I'm honored by that. What's your favorite vacation spot? Probably uh, Kanapali Beach, Hawaii. Oh, I love that beach myself. If you could just get there in an hour. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I get it. What do your grandchildren call you? Six of my grandchildren call me Pop, but my granddaughter calls me Baba because she started calling me Bob, and her parents said, yo, you can't call him Bob. It's going to be Pop, and it came up Baba, So I, I and it's kind of endearing to me. She I think that's Baba. actually Greek for grandfather, Baba. Oh, I knew that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what, what's, uh, what's your favorite hymn or song? Rock of Ages. Uh, do you remember your first sermon? 
I do. What was it? First sermon was uh, Jesus, the sweetest name I know from Philippians 2. Was it a good sermon? It was good enough to get me Southeast Christian Church. So wow. I guess okay. good enough. Uh, and who is your greatest spiritual hero? That's a hard question to answer. Uh, I guess I, I, I wouldn't go way back in history. Uh, I would say probably John Wilson, who was a pastor in the Christian church and who lived to be 100 years old. Wow. But he, I had him in Bible college, and he was faithful unto death. Well, praise the Lord. Uh, well, you are one of my spiritual heroes. I'm grateful to the Lord for you, for your ministry. Yeah, thank you. And can, may I say it, your humility. You, you, are, you really are a somebody, but you treat everybody as though they are as important and as accomplished as you. And I'm grateful for oh, that. Oh, that's very nice. Russell. You know, I remember going to lunch with you. I have a lunch with a lot of pastors. You mentioned going to lunch. Yeah. I think we went to Sandrella's, and I was so impressed with you. And uh, I, I remember that. And that's a, that's a compliment to you because there are a lot of things I don't remember. Well, thank you. That is a compliment. You've been a blessing to me through the years. And I thank you, Bob Russell, for being with us on Pastor Well. Thank you to all of you who tuned in. If you've not yet subscribed, make sure you do so on YouTube or on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. I'll look forward to seeing you again on Pastor Well.